Welcome to another episode of the Historical Society of New York Courts podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. Today is April 20th, 2020. I am Dennis Glazer, and together with my friend, Judge Albert Rosenblatt, we will be discussing the evolution of slavery, abolition in New York, and the New York courts, including the Lemon Slave Case. Not coincidentally, that is the title of a new book that Judge Rosenblatt has written. Uh, let me introduce my friend and screenmate, Al Rosenblatt. Al has devoted his life to public service. Uh, after serving as an assistant district attorney, he was elected to be the district attorney of Dutchess County. After that, Al served as a judge for 31 years, first in county court, then in as, as a Supreme Court justice, including several years as a chief administrative judge for the Unified Court System of New York, and finally as a judge of the highest court in New York, the New York Court of Appeals. I am very proud to call Al Rosenblatt my friend. Uh, he is one of the smartest, nicest people I know, and I'm delighted to be here with him today on this uh, podcast. As for me, I was a partner for many years at Davis Polk and Wardwell, a large New York law firm, where I led a 200-lawyer litigation department, um, back to Al, he has spent a lot of his free time studying and teaching the law and its history. He is particularly well informed about the history of New York law and lawyers. And as I mentioned, he recently wrote a book on the topics we will be discussing today. Before we get started, Al and I want to thank uh, Daniel Sierra of the Historical Society of the New York Courts for putting together this session. Thank you, Daniel. So let's get started. Uh, Al, uh, why don't you give us a little historical context of how slavery started and grew in New York uh, and give us a little context leading up to the 1800s. Yeah, it's extraordinary, Dennis, that here we are in 2020 and we're looking back, the Lemon case is 160 years ago. And when you and I were chatting about this, we arrived at an extraordinary fact uh, an arithmetic fact that in New York State, on New York State soil, considering that before it was New York State, it was uh, a colony of the English, a New York colony, and before that, under the Dutch, on the soil that we occupy, we have had slavery longer than not. In 2026, it'll break even. But right now, we've had slavery on this soil longer than not. And as you pointed out when we were chatting the other day, it really began in the early 17th century. As far as the exact date, 16-teens or 1620s in there. Um, but that's really the starting date. And it slowly grew into an institution over the years where it became codified, established, and unlike its early beginnings, which were sort of catch and catch can, it became uh, a brisk business. Yeah, in fact, um, while the first slaves may have arrived in uh, Charleston, uh, South Carolina, uh, New York was for a long, for many, many years, the prime port through which uh, captured enslaved people were brought to this country. Uh, being the largest port in the colonies and such a natural and wonderful uh, deep water port, uh, the New York, uh, there were New York interests, uh, that trading interests, uh, that had a lot of uh, economic stake in the slave trade. Uh, much as we think of the North as being uh, less 
reliant on slavery. Uh, some of the New York interests back in the early days were in fact heavily reliant on it because it was a very lucrative trade. Well, what a good point that is. We sometimes think of the northern southern divide and we're maybe all too likely to uh, pat ourselves in the back as being on the moral high ground. The truth of it is that uh, for a time, slavery existed co-equally in the North and the South. In the South, it became an agricultural dependency and a way of life, less so in New York, uh, increasingly less so as we changed our economy from uh, agrarian to uh, more commercial and industrial. And that marked uh, the differences and, uh, and the evolution. Yeah, the South relied on cotton and relied on tobacco, both of which were heavily dependent on labor. Uh, to uh, to get the crops and to uh, bring the crops uh, to a point where they could be brought to market. So the southern economy came to rely more and more on enslaved people. And the northern economy, as it got more industrial, came to rely less and less on them. And so it, le it led to, um, well, while some people did have the moral high ground, uh, there was also an economic uh, aspect to this that uh, not everybody focuses on. I was a little bit dismayed, but not particularly surprised to learn that the elements that were less abolitionist in New York were the commercial interests who, while they may not have been enamored with slavery and they might have on some level or other thought it was not a very good idea, earned their living through the mills, the banks, the finance houses, retailing, wholesaling, and all that went into taking the slave product and putting it into the commercial market through New York. So those interests were far from abolitionists and they were a little bit resistant uh, to the uh, ultimate abolition movement. As a matter of fact, they, they, almost, they almost had contempt for abolitionists because they equated abolitionism with the breakdown of the union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history in New York and uh, how it developed uh, well, you know, including let's start with the uh, Constitutional Convention um, in uh, 1787. After the Dutch and the English <coughs> colony, the Dutch had it as catch as catch can. The English then codifies it, codified it and wrote laws over slavery. By the time we became a colony in the uh, an English colony from 1664, until 1776 when we broke loose, we practiced slavery under the English. Then in 1777, when we became a state, slavery continued, um, the, uh, the practice of it continued, and when we went to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 in Philadelphia, the drafters of the Constitution, although they never actually mentioned the word slavery, had a number of provisions in the United States Constitution. And those of you who carry around uh, your little pocket Constitution, I know Dennis, you and I do, in case yes. like John Wayne, if we ever get hit by a bullet, we're going to have the Constitution there to protect us, right? That would be quite a story. The Constitution saved my life. Yeah. <laughs> so if you open up the Constitution, you will find the Fugitive Slave Clause, which is still there, it's never been repealed. It's just inoperative by virtue of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. You also find a provision that really accounts for 
slave power. <clears throat> and that is, it's still in the, in our little pocket constitutions, the three-fifths clause by which <clears throat> representation in the Congress was measured by the amount of slaves. So for every 100,000 slaves, or every 50,000 slaves, that counted as 30,000 for purposes of tallying representation. Yeah, and just to tell a little bit of a story about that, um, the South was worried that the North would get uh, too many of the representatives in the new, newly formed House of Representatives. And uh, so the South wanted to increase its power there. Not that it wanted to give enslaved people the vote, but it wanted them counted as full people for the purpose of dividing up who got the most representatives and where the representatives came from, from the new Congress. And as a result of that, a compromise was reached where slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person for purposes of that um, uh, provision uh, as to the allocation of representatives in the new House of Representatives. And that gave the South uh, approximately equal power with the North uh, in the new House of Representatives, and that's uh, how it was selected. Uh, so it, it is a lot of history tied up in that, including the Electoral College history uh, as well, because ultimately the Electoral College was based on an elector for every member of the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so by deciding to do the House of Representatives, including three-fifths of, of an enslaved person counted, uh, that also changed the Electoral College uh, provision as well. And that became much more entrenched uh, in the new constitution. Really, really interesting and extraordinary that that was the initial fountain. And when you look at those two clauses and a couple more, the three-fifths clause that gave uh, slave power its political voice and its political might, and also, also in the constitution still there never repealed but again inoperative because of the uh, civil war and the uh, amendments after the civil war was the fugitive slave clause so if the three-fifths clause as you pointed out was operative in terms of the political uh, dimension the three the uh, fugitive slave clause created enough agitation in the public and in the courts that the prospect of runaway slaves being returned or not returned to the South created an enormous political furor and found its way into the judiciary. Yes, so tell us about how that grew in New York uh, and, and talk about slavery generally in New York leading up to uh, 1826. Yeah, you mentioned 1826, right. Just as a side note, we abolished slavery in New York by legislative action, by legislative fiat, gradually starting in 1799, so that the last slave was set free on July 4th, 1827. So that's the bracket for eventual uh, gradual, uh, gradual abolition. Why wasn't, it done all, why wasn't it done all at once? If they felt that way in 1799, why didn't they simply say uh, slavery is abolished as of today? You know, good point. Uh, pure politics, uh, it would have been seen as radical. And I think John Jay, who was the governor at the time, very realistic politician in the best sense of the word, <clears throat> recognized that he could swing it, but he didn't have the clout and the public was not ready to go for it. 
um, and it would have been too much resisted if it was done by one judicial act. So it could it only be done gradually, not if it was going to be done at all. Yeah, and it worked. It worked gradually, little by little. People got used to it. Uh, they began to feel the uh, intellectual effects of the Enlightenment, 18th century Enlightenment. They were able to see and hear the words of the Declaration of Independence, all people are created equal. And it slowly started to sink in to the public mind that year by year they could no longer uh, they could no longer see any consistency between the majestic phrases in the Declaration of Independence, all people are created equal, and yet in New York, there's slavery, the height of inequality. So gradual, gradual, um, gradual abolition was the key. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that for individuals, for particular people, uh, 27 extra years of slavery in their lives uh, may have been the rest of their lives. It, may, it was a good chunk of their lives, and it was a terrible imposition of them, on them of uh, enforced uh, power. Um, and so it may have been politically convenient uh, to talk about, as we do now, a couple hundred years later, about how uh, a compromise was necessary. But for the individuals who were living it, that compromise didn't do them much good. That's right. And they uh, found their way out of slavery in the South through the border states, eventually uh, into New York. But to your point about the Constitution, uh, we in 1788 in New York, people like you and me, not necessarily our direct ancestors, but our symbolic ancestors, so to speak, <coughs> went to a convention in July in 1788, deciding whether we're gonna join the Union. So they wrote the Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787, and then it fell to all the states to decide, do we wanna buy into the Union? Do we wanna join the Union? And we made that decision in July of 1788 on behalf of New York State. We made that decision, but we were reluctant and we were one of the later states to ratify. And one of the reasons we were the, one of the later states to ratify was that we had a governor named Clinton who was very much opposed. And in fact, uh, to the Constitutional Convention, we had three delegates allowed uh, and only one attended, a man named Alexander Hamilton. Yes, yes. Uh, he was not allowed to vote. Do you what, know that? What a good point. You see, he signed it, Alexander Hamilton, uh, of New York, not for New York. Isn't that he didn't have the right to sign for New York, being only one of a three-person delegation. And the governor had refused to let the other two go. Amazing. So, uh, New York was actually, and technically, not a voting member, uh, not a voting state at the Constitutional Convention. But Alexander Hamilton obviously had much to say. Some people say too much to say uh, at the convention. Uh, but... Uh, he, he, he represented the views of a certain aspect of New York, but he was unable to vote uh, for New York. And that's why he signed uh, as, a, uh, you know, for, as he did. So should we open up our wallets now and take out our $10 bills and say, hooray for Hamilton. Hooray for Hamilton, <laughs> that's right. Everlasting role in American uh, life, American constitutional history. Although many people believe that Hamilton himself owned slaves. Uh, he's portrayed in the Broadway show as being a strong abolitionist, and he was a member of one of the first organizations, a manumission society. So he was anti-slavery in his uh, views, 
but it's believed that he and his wife may have owned several slaves over the course of their time in New York. You know, that's, that's so, that's, that's so um, insightful because it's easy for us to look back now and say, how in the world did that happen? But the person who, as we recognize, was perhaps the most single important figure in abolition, John Jay and the Jay family, John Jay himself, the founder, owned slaves. And when they organized the Manumission Society, they were all slaveholders because anyone of means in the country uh, or mostly owned slaves. And the Manumission people were saying, here's how we do it. We're gradually going to abolish slavery, but we cannot simply or easily just simply release um, all the slaves because they're uneducated, they're unskilled, and it's going to create political discord. So the, the, uh, the theme of the Manumission Society was to release them slowly and to educate them so that they could fall within the general fabric and become diluted within the population. Some as late as uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, thought that one of the ways to do this was to deport the slaves and put them in a place uh, where they, uh, an island in the Caribbean, uh, yeah. where they could be together. Uh, and uh, just think of that, people who had spent, who had been many generations in the United States, enslaved people nevertheless, um, just taking them, lifting them up, and moving them. It was a, they tried it with 500, and it was a failed experiment. Yeah, yeah. Totally failed experiment, in part because it wasn't supported with schools and, uh, and health care and other things that were necessary. It was sort of an expedient, uh, and in some circles, they'd, all right, let's, let, there's no way to solve. This is an insoluble problem. Like Jefferson said, we've got the wolf by the ears. We cannot let him go, and we cannot not let it go. So somebody says, well, okay, let's send them to Liberia. Uh, uh, you know, another failed experiment. And Jefferson, of all people, who owned uh, 200 slaves himself um, at his death. Um, Washington owned slaves. Uh, I mean, all of our founders uh, uh, owned enslaved people or uh, purported to own them. And we'll talk about the, the property interest uh, subject in a minute uh, when we get to uh, our, slave, our lemon slave case. So when, when we get to uh, Philadelphia, when we get to New York in 1788, um, there were a number of reasons, as you point out, why we were reluctant. Uh, our friend Steve Schechter wrote a book called The Reluctant Pillar, to use your word. <clears throat> we were the reluctant pillar. And we had, we had some bad reasons, but we also had a lot of good reasons why we didn't want to join the union, in part because we didn't know what this federal government was all about. We didn't want to surrender New York's uh, impost and its uh, economic and political power to an unknown entity. And also, we'd like to think that New York balked at the idea because the Constitution had no Bill of Rights and no protections against the federal government. So Clinton and uh, Melanchthon Smith and others balked. And Smith also, by the way, uh, pointed out that this document has provisions for slavery that he um, was um, he was a little bit derisive on that point, not enough to refuse to join, but that was one of the elements. It was no easy task to get New York to go along and ratify the Constitution. Uh, that was the role of the Federalist, Federalist Papers. They were actually not written for the rest of the country. They were written for New Yorkers. Uh, they were written uh, by uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, and John Jay. 
Uh, our, I think John Jay is an absolute hero of our early founding period, uh, less uh, celebrated perhaps because he never became president. All he became was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court and Governor of New York, uh, among other things. But uh, uh, a brilliant guy who had a huge place in history that I think is uh, underrepresented in the, the books of history that are written about that period. One more thing about Jefferson not freeing his own enslaved people when he died. Um, it turned out that uh, Thomas Jefferson died uh, deeply in debt. And among his assets, the most prominent of his assets were his approximately 200 slaves. And it would have been a fraudulent conveyance against his creditors had he freed his slaves and denied his creditors access to that sense of value that they represented. Um, it was, I, I think, left to his own devices if he had been uh, secure financially. Uh, I, obviously, you can't put yourself back in a man's mind in 1826, but uh, I think one of the reasons he may not have uh, freed his uh, enslaved people uh, was that he was, in fact, uh, uh, quite in debt. He lived, li he lived life above his means, uh, and they were considerable means, but he lived considerably well. He was well portrayed by Robert Redford, too, in the film. Yes. Maybe, maybe a bit of a resemblance, sort of a really handsome guy with a reddish, uh, <coughs> reddish tint to his hair. Uh, a lot of good, particularly in the majestic phrases, but the inconsistencies are there. Yes. To be looked at, to be examined, to be appreciated, and not to be shoveled under the rug. No. Uh, so, yeah. Well, let's get back to New York, and let's get back to uh, New York and uh, what uh, New York was like, um, and particularly the New York courts. Tell us how the courts dealt with slavery and how it, was, how it came to the courts and what kind of cases. You know, when you a moment ago talked about uh, creditors, that was basically the um, bulk of the business in New York for a very long time, for probably well over 100 years. Mortgages, contracts, exchanges, inheritance, and all of the um, jurisprudence that's associated with slaves as a commodity. So at the time, they would apply contract principles, inheritance principles, and if you were to look at the first oh, at least 50 years of slavery cases in New York, you would see nothing but cases in which slaves are treated um, in terms of contract and inheritance and uh, subjects like that. It really wasn't until after we abolished it. So from 1827 on. We, we in New York. Uh, we, we in New York. We, we in New York, yeah. When we abolished it, then we turned over a new leaf and a lot of the cases that arose in New York were no longer New York commerce as to whether a slave is a subject of a contract or not. At that point, there was litigation over what obligation New York had to, re to uh, allow the return of runaway slaves to the South. And at that point, a host of cases grew up in New York when Southern slave owners appeared in New York courts seeking the return of their so-called quote-unquote property to the South. Property rights are what the basis was for the South complaining about the North uh, or the federal government 
having any uh, anything to say about their use of their quote unquote property. Right. Uh, and in New York, oh, one of the reasons I suppose that we in New York use a 27 year period uh, to gradually emancipate uh, the enslaved people uh, was that we were taking people's property without compensation and we gave them plenty of notice. When the Southerners made the argument that we were not being sufficiently compliant in giving the slaves back, they would wave their finger at us with one hand and the Constitution on the other hand, and they would say, look, you folks agreed in the Fugitive Slave Law, Fugitive Slave Clause, you agreed to give the slaves back, and now you're getting up on your high horse and you're resisting. You people are being unfaithful and inconsistent. That was an argument we heard repeatedly made in New York where they were rebuking New York courts, and this is something lawyers can understand. As a moral matter, that's different, but lawyers appreciated that we were, to a large extent, bound by what we had signed on to in the Fugitive Slave Clause. Talking about high horse, one of the arguments the Southern states made was that if you come through the Southern state with your horse, your property, right, and we took your horse away, what would you say to us? And they made that argument as to the property that they held under the provisions of the Constitution. Uh, and the other thing about the Constitution, we should go back to that period just for 30 seconds, is to say that uh, it has been widely viewed by historians that there would not have been a Constitution but for the compromises made with regard to slavery and the exclusion of slavery as a word in the Constitution. Without those compromises, there would have been no country. It's so easy for us to say, uh, looking back, you know, sitting in our contentment in our armchairs, what in the world got into them? How in the world could they have gone along with slavery and with the provisions in the Constitution? A, we were slaveholders at the time, many New Yorkers, particularly the, the ones that were eminent, and B, there, there's every reason to believe, I agree, that, that they, the South probably would not have um, joined the Union, which would have meant history had taken a totally different course. We would be two separate nations. We don't know what the history of the world would have been like. And in so, fact, uh, that's one of the reasons the South kept saying and the lead up to the Civil War, this was our deal. You're going back on our deal. Right. And they thought they had the right to withdraw if the deal was being broken uh, uh, by the federal government. Tell us, tell me one thing, uh, Al. Um, did anybody at all question the inhumanity? Did anybody in that time period or before in the Enlightenment? I mean, uh, this is a brutal, a brutal institution. Uh, people were killed, people were maimed, people were uh, uh, suffered greatly physically and mentally under it. Did anybody say, this is inhuman, what are we doing? It was very hard to say that during the time when it was accepted as routine. Uh, we began to hear talk like that exactly so after the Enlightenment. This is Enlightenment talk by Enlightenment political scientists, philosophers. And then um, we began to see it creeping into the decisions and into legislative uh, debates. And we start seeing it in language in the courts, um, maybe in the early 19th century. 
and by the time we were in a position where the South was uh, lecturing us for our faithlessness, what they would say, in returning fugitives, at that point, we began to resist on legal grounds and on moral grounds. We had a, a good legal ground on which to resist the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Fugitive Slave Law, because we would say, okay, we understand that, that the Constitution obligates us to give back the slaves, but we first want to give it due process. And we're just not gonna take someone off the street and say, here, because you think that person might be a slave. We want jury trials, and we want the writ of habeas corpus so they can be tested by a court. So that began to grow up, and that happened in the northern states, uh, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. But that provision, which was part of what we call personal liberty laws, in other words, injecting due process before we allow recapture of slaves, was shot down by the United States Supreme Court in Prigg against Pennsylvania in the early 1840s. Just imagine, this was 15 years before Dred Scott, and we had a case on the book called Prigg that was really the first shoe dropping, and the second shoe dropping was Dred Scott. The Supreme Court played a role in, the, yes. in supporting um, the institution of slavery. Yes. And they started playing that role pretty early, right? Yes, they shut down Pennsylvania's personal liberty law. Pennsylvania said, okay, we'll comply with slave recaption, but we want a jury trial and we want due process. We don't want people kidnapped. So they passed the kidnapping law saying anybody that just kidnaps a dark-skinned person and brings them back south, we're going to arrest them and convict them for kidnapping. That went up to the United States Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said that Pennsylvania was powerless to pass a kidnapping law because it was an entrenchment on the federal preemption of all slavery rendition cases. That was really amazingly one of the first federal preemption cases ever. Right. Maybe the first. But it was not inaccurate in this way. The northern states were using due process, habeas corpus, the right for an individual to testify uh, it, before he was sent back uh, into slavery. Uh, all, they were using those tools to try to defeat uh, the basic fugitive slave law and its provisions. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's, it was not in, inconsistent. I mean, these were all tactics. Right. Lawyers and people were using in the, uh, in the Northern States. Exactly. And when, when, when the uh, lawyers and the Southerners began to realize that they are not finding uh, hospitable tribunals in the state courts, the Congress passed the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and they designated an entire federal cadre to handle these slave rendition cases, and therefore the slavery interests stayed out of the state courts, which were inhospitable. They moved in before federal commissioners who were authorized and obligated uh, to send back slaves on the thinnest evidence, hearsay, no jury, without lawyers, and where they got paid twice as much for sending the slave back as they got for keeping the slave. So slave power moved into these tribunals with federal commissioners and they stayed out of the state courts.
Yeah, and backing it up to 5,000 feet, uh, this was done because the North and the South were at odds with each other, and the federal government was trying to intervene to settle aspects of their disputes, and the disputes centered on when an individual crossed into the, from the South to the North, his status or her status. Let's talk about the Lemon case. Uh, give us a little background. Uh, what were the facts of that case? Uh, we'll do it like it's a law school class that you run. Well, by the time we got to Lemon, Lemon <clears throat> began in 1852. So by that time, we had experience with fugitive slave renditions under the Fugitive Slave Act of, eight, of 1793, and we were on the heels of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, in which the Congress had strengthened the provisions so that they made it almost inevitable that anybody grabbed off the street was going to be sent back south. So this is two years later. And we had uh, some turbulence in New York where fugitive slaves were sought by the South. And uh, it was in that environment that the Lemon case uh, arose. And um, it was 26 years after New York had abolished slavery in the state. It was 1852, right. That's right. The had become very settled and used to a state without slaves. Right. Yes, interesting. The, uh, a lot of people in New York remembered slaves being around. They may even have had slaves in their household, but slowly and gradually we got used to the idea of abolition. And um, I'll just take a wild guess that if it were put to a vote, most New Yorkers would have felt comfortable with uh, being anti-slavery and its abolition. There were commercial interests that were still leaning toward uh, slave power, but by and large, the population was shifting toward anti-slavery. A lot of the commercial interests continued. I mean, they still, uh, textiles were still uh, exported and, uh, and uh, moved around. I mean, the, a lot of the commercial interests, there was no longer a, an active market in the importation or selling of slaves in the North. That had moved entirely to Charleston, or almost entirely to Charleston, South Carolina. But the northern interests, the economic interests of cotton, tobacco, and importation and exportation, exporting of that uh, product uh, were still very active. Textiles. So in some sense, New York got the, kept the best of, the, of, the, of both worlds, if you will. New York uh, gained economically, kept the economic strength uh, from, uh, from those products, and yet uh, uh, had the little more highfalutin a view of themselves as, uh, as, as abolitionists. Tell us about the Lemon case and the facts. Yeah, so uh, the Lemons were slave owners uh, who lived in Norfolk, Virginia, or rather they emanated from Norfolk, Virginia, and wanted to emigrate to Texas. And back in those days, I guess the transportation was not what it was. You couldn't get on an airplane and fly right to Texas. A number of, uh, of, of routings uh, existed, and one of them was to go through New York by sea. So they would get on a steamer in Virginia, get to New York by steamer, and from there to New Orleans, and from there to Texas. That was the route that the lemon slaves were taken. So they had their own family, Julia and Jonathan Lemon, their own children, and eight slaves. And the eight slaves were from age two to 
the older slaves who were women and mothers of these of this group. But they were young. They were 22 and 23 years old as well. About that. These were all very young people. Indeed, and, and that plays a part in, um, in a, an anecdote that actually happened a little bit later on. So they arrive in New York, and this was only recently discovered by a couple of writers uh, who um, found an interview in the Troy newspaper years after the Civil War in which a guy named Nathan Lobham described that he played an actual role. He was a black um, assistant chef on the steamer and he heard a conversation with the Lemons and the captains that the slaves were going to board the ship and be brought to New York and then Texas. And he knew that. And, they, and they were, the Lemons were worried and everybody was worried that if people found out that there had been slaves brought to New York, it might create some controversy or difficulty. So they were keeping it secret, right? Exactly. And the captain was mum about it. And uh, although there had not been a lot of instances of New Yorkers grabbing slaves off of ships, the Southerners still knew that it was a little bit more cautious to stay out of New York if you could. So they had a hint of this already, that there was enough abolitionism that New York was not a great place to be. Right, now the Lemons came up on one ship to New York and they were transferring to a different ship that right. was several days away before right. they could go to Texas. Right, so we don't know what exactly happened, but we have a pretty good idea piecing together affidavits and news accounts. Nathan Lobham, when the ship docked in New York, when the steamer docked in New York, sent out word to three people. First, he goes to the slaves and he says, do you guys want to be free? That's an easy question. That's an easy question. What an easy question. I mean, imagine someone who's been enslaved, who can't even conceptualize the notion of liberty. And they chatted among themselves and the older ones the two women, mothers, said, yes, we want, we're going to take a chance. They put their entire families at risk. He put everyone at risk, himself, yeah, the captain, uh, and they said, look, we'll, we'll take a shot. The captain and the steward would have been fine had this been found out. The slaves, yeah. not so. The slaves would have been, if they were found out and sent back, they would have been uh, you know, punished, flogged, executed, who knows what. Sure. So the steward, Nathan Lobham, puts out word. He sends out messengers to three people. One to Louis Napoleon, one of our heroes. It's yours and mine. Yes. Louis Napoleon, who was a, 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 a black son of a former slave. A half black. Half black, right, right. We think. We, we're not even sure. That's right, half black. And uh, then to a lawyer. Erastus Culver, who was already known as coming to the rescue of fugitives, and he also sent a third note to a restaurant that was inhabited by African Americans near the docks. And he figures he's putting out these three messengers, and maybe something will happen to let people know that there are slaves on board who want to be free. Now, well, just slow down a second. There's a network 
right. of lawyers, right. of um, members of uh, conductors on the Underground Railroad, people trying to find uh, enslaved people who might have an argument for freedom. Right. Uh, and this whole network goes to work yeah. to try to get these people to find out where they're being kept in a hotel right. in New York and how to help them. Right. Now, you mentioned the Underground Railroad. We ought to maybe expand on that a little bit. The Underground Railroad, I mean, um, you know, uh, for those who don't know, is it, not a real railroad. It is, doesn't have tracks, it doesn't have trains, and it doesn't transport people in the usual way we think of a railroad. Uh, it was a series of safe houses and people who created safe spaces for enslaved people running from the South and trying to get their freedom to escape from the Fugitive Slave Act and other similar problems and, and laws and bounties that, that were put out on their, on their return. Uh, and so there was a network of people and New York had a very well-developed network of people where they would be uh, moved, where enslaved people who got to New York would be moved up upstate and up through the middle of the state, uh, through New York City, further up, and oftentimes to Canada where um, once they reached Canada, they were beyond the reach of the fugitive slave law and, and these other uh, impositions on their freedom. Uh, so it's called the Underground Railroad. And uh, our friend, uh, Louis Napoleon, uh, famously called himself, when, he, when they asked him what he did for a living, he said he was a conductor yeah. on the Underground Railroad. And we actually have his, uh, uh, his obituary that says that, and his death certificate. Death certificate. The doctor who certified his death uh, noted his, his occupation as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. That was his primary occupation. That was his primary occupation. Yeah. yeah. So what did these people do? What, I mean, how did they go about get, getting the slaves in front of a, some authority that could do them some good? Yeah. These were, these were real heroes. These were incomparable heroes, uh, not entirely Quaker, but basically engineered and helped out by the Quaker ethos. And it would go in, you know, in the middle of the night, one homestead talking to another, here are the slaves, five miles up the road to the next safe house, keep them in the basement. And they did this at, at great risk because they could have been uh, fined and imprisoned for harboring slaves. It was made punishable under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. So there was risk. It was comparable in the 20th century. This would have been like people uh, harboring uh, uh, Jews from uh, Nazis in areas where the Nazis were looking for them and they were being hidden in barns in the middle of the night and moved around. That's a historical parallel. And uh, the same sort of level of heroism that we see this level of uncommon courage. These were, these, were, these were Caucasian white people right. who felt strongly that slavery was a, a moral wrong and they were going to do everything they could to help the, uh, an enslaved person who made it as far as to a northern state. There was a network of people trying to find out where they were and what their status was and how they could help. And where did they find them? Right. So the word goes out from Nathan Lobham, Louis Napoleon, who was one of the engineers of the Underground Railroad, obviously he wasn't a lawyer. He was not even literate. He was never schooled, but he was very smart, very resourceful. 
and he did not spend his time in the courts. This was only the second or third time he'd been in a court dealing with um, fugitives, with, with uh, slaves and trying to get them free. He spent most of his time dealing with Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass getting the slaves out. But he and the lawyer Erastus, um, Erastus Culver get together and they compose a writ of habeas corpus, which at the time, as now, the great writ, which we inherited from our common law predecessors in England, is a document in which a judge says to someone who is holding someone in custody, I want you into court and explain by what right you are holding these people. Habeas corpus means bring me the body. Yes, you are the body. And uh, it, it, is the, it is the golden writ. It is the only, um, it is the only provision that really is in the system of rights that got there before the Bill of Rights. It's in the Constitution itself. The other rights are in the Bill of Rights. That's how much we value the uh, writ of habeas corpus. And it comes down through the English system uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, Louis Napoleon brings a, a writ of habeas corpus and he signs it with an X. Right. Why does he sign it with an X? That's the best he could do. Uh, I'm going to think that if Louis Napoleon <laughs> went to school, you'd, you'd find him at the Institute of Advanced Studies somewhere. That's how smart he was. <clears throat> but never being educated, he did what he could do. He was not literate. And so what he did was he dictated the writ, which the clerk wrote down. And right. he executed it with his ex. Right. So Culver, of course, provided the uh, legal language based on information that, uh, that Napoleon had gathered. And they made the assertion in the writ that they, on information and belief, as you know, as lawyers, we use phrases like on information and belief. We have come to believe that there are eight slaves on New York soil. And by virtue of a statute in New York, anyone on New York soil is free. And based on that, they're asking the judge to order the police to find the slaves and the owners and bring them before the court so that the judge can say to the slave owners, the lemons, on what basis are you holding these people? And then we'd have a regular judicial proceeding. Tell us about the judge. Well, Elijah, Payne. Elijah Payne, yeah, again, uh, not, not on everyone's household word list, but I have come to have such affection for Elijah Payne. He was sitting in his chambers Saturday morning uh, in uh, November of 1852. Judges worked on Saturday back then? I get, well, don't they still? <laughs> and Sundays? <laughs> well, I, you know, the chief judge sets an example, right? So, yep. okay. So uh, uh, he's sitting in his chambers, and we don't know exactly what happened, but we can pretty well reconstruct what happened. Arrest this Culver and Louis Napoleon knock on the door. Elijah Payne says, yes, come on in. Can I help you? And they say, Your Honor, we have this writ of habeas corpus. <clears throat> We're alleging that the slaves are uh, on New York soil. 
Now, let me go back a little bit, Dennis, because there's a question here which would make a movie, I think. How did the abolitionists, how did Louis Napoleon and his team get the people, get the slaves off the boat, off the steamer, and onto New York soil? This is strictly speculation, but I think it's probably a pretty good guess. It may be that Orestes Culver said to Napoleon, look, we know these people are on the water. We would be a lot better off if we got them on New York soil, juridically and as a practical matter as far as the police process and maybe law. And we don't know how it happened, but by some device, Louis Napoleon and others working with him were able to arrange for a carriage to take the slaves from the steamer and take them to a location on New York soil on Carlisle Street on the belief that the steamer to New Orleans was not going to leave until the next day and they had to find lodging in New York. This may well have been a ruse, we don't know, but anyway, the coach people who may have been in cahoots with Louis Napoleon. And for all we know, Louis Napoleon may have been driving the coach, yep. takes the slaves, and he brings them to a house on Carlisle Street. Now they're on New York soil. Now, when Judge Elijah Payne signs the writ, Orestes Culver gets the police, and they say, we're going to find these slaves on number, whatever it is, the numbers varied all over the place, Carlisle Street. So they now go before Judge Payne. He is a, uh, a very young uh, erudite, privileged person who, uh, back in those days, I think, um, in order to become a judge in New York or elsewhere, uh, no one was concerned with diversity in those days. I think it was a it was a, a tribunal that uh, the well-born found their way into a lot quicker than others. He himself was uh, uh, he graduated from Harvard College. His father was a federal judge. They came from Vermont, and he came from a family of erudition uh, and literacy. So, and he himself was a was one of the reporters. So he was when he was a judge, he was very, very erudite and very literate. And he brought with him an intellectual background in his own college schooling that uh, was part of the Enlightenment. Yeah, but he only served three years, right, as a judge. Well, he, that's right. He had been at bench only on a short time, and he was only. I say only from my viewpoint, he was only about 53 or 54 when this all happened. Uh, and he's sitting there and he knew instantly that this is a big lawsuit because he knew that by ordering the slaves into his courtroom, he knew that Virginia would of course resist and that the Lemons would come in and say, in, this, in essence, how dare you take and deprive us of our property. We are citizens of Virginia and we own this under Virginia law and we do not surrender privileges and immunities nor or comity by merely setting foot in New York. 
and there he knew there was a lawsuit there where there was going to be both sides. But he signs the writ, and uh, I think we have some imagery where uh, Erastus Corning describes how he and the police go into Carlisle Street and they find the slaves. This is really the stuff, if a Hollywood producer or a, an English producer could really do something marvelous with how they actually get to the scene. Oh, before we get to that, let's talk about the players. We talked about Louis Napoleon, and he was from Staten Island, and as we said, he was not educated, uh, but he was a, uh, a brilliant uh, advocate in many ways. Uh, we talked about uh, the attorney uh, Culver. Tell us what other attorneys were involved in the case over the course of time. Ah, well, uh, a little later on down the road, Culver engaged a young lawyer uh, from upstate New York whose father was a minister and an abolitionist. And the young lawyer later on became, he was known as young Chet at the time, Yes. But we have come to know him as Chester Arthur, who later became president of the United States. 21st president of the United States. Isn't that great? He was a young lawyer back then. Young Chet. Young handsome Chet. young dude. Uh, came into the case when it was on appeal, but was the attorney of record. His name goes down in People Against Lemon in 20 New York when it reached the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, Chester Arthur was the attorney of record. Isn't that great? Well, part of it was he was in Culver's firm, and Culver became himself a judge. Yes. And therefore, the case uh, went to young Chet. Right. And he engaged William Everett, or the state of New York engaged William Everett to be uh, the orator before the New York Court of Appeals. And before. The people who William Everett was. Oh, my. He comes down later, Dennis, as you know. Uh, William Everett, uh, the great lawyers in the history of New York, indeed, uh, became Lincoln's Secretary of State, um, spawned himself a great family of American citizens and those in the highest level of political life. And I think I've got to check this, but I think Archibald Cox was a grandson or great grandson of William Everett. Yeah, and how about how about uh, young John Jay? John Jay, yes, John Jay, we call him, you and I refer to him as John Jay II, because he had the same name as the founder. John Jay came into the case early, uh, and, and after Erastus Culver got the case initially, John Jay was brought in at, the, at an early level, and he was teamed up with Culver at the habeas level, and he and Jay and Culver had been teamed up in a number of cases before then when the Southerners were trying to grab and, uh, and take slaves back south. He and uh, Jay and Culver were a team. They'd been active in this for practically, you know, basically pro bono in enormous heroics, fighting the good fight for years doing this in state and, uh, and before federal tribunals. John Jay, the governor, uh, is, uh, is governor at the time that New York abolishes slavery in a, uh, over time. John Jay II, his grandson, is involved in this case. Right. And the middle one, William Jay, was a Westchester County judge. So also an abolitionist who wrote against abolition. So 
I mean, we got three generations of the Jay family. Just think of that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and even today, the Jays uh, are so distinguished. They're not all named Jay. There's you know down down they come down the line through the female line. But what what an extraordinary family. So yes, John Jay too at that point came into the picture. So let's go back to Judge Payne. He hears argument, and it's about a week later, and he issues a ruling. What does he say? Uh, he heard argument first, and the argument actually exists. We're able, you know, with the internet, you could find almost anything. There is a record of the argument, and we're privy to that. He was uh, the sort of judge who had, you know, two ears and one mouth. And you could see during the argument how every once in a while he would ask a question that shows such astuteness that you say, oh my goodness, wow, what, what, a, what, a, what a brain, what a sharp guy this is. And they're going on and on. The, the lawyers for the Lemons are saying, they're, they're our property. And uh, with all due respect, Your Honor, New York has no right to keep property just as Dennis Glazer would say on a little videotape here, uh, we can't steal horses of property. We're, we've got to give them back. Uh, and New York, and uh, Jay would say, and COVID, but we have a statute. And our statute says anyone who sets foot in New York is free. And that statute that Payne depended on had been amended. The earlier statute said, anyone who sets foot in New York is free, except slave owners are allowed to sojourn in New York with their slaves for nine months. A period of time where they would be protected. For nine months. Then the legislature struck the nine months and they repealed it prior to the Lemon case. Now, as a lawyer, Dennis, what do we know? When you have a provision that is stricken and that's what the statute did. It struck that nine-month provision. Any lawyer will tell you, well, there's no ambiguity here. When you strike a provision, boom, that is out. So uh, Jay and Culver argued that when the nine-month provision, that nine-month allowance was stricken, that meant instantaneous freedom. So they argued before Judge Payne that the statute now provided instantaneous freedom. Now that's a New York statute. Remember there were, you remember, you told us, uh, there were statutes, federal statutes on the book right. in the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. So right. now you have Fugitive Slave Law, it's been right. held as preempting state laws. Right. And Payne has a state law being argued to him, not the federal law. Right. Right, so this brings us back. I hope I'm not boring the viewers, but I have to tell you about a conversation that Dennis and I had many, many months ago when we we're talking about the Lemon case and what happened, and we're chatting back and forth, and Dennis says, wait a minute, the Fugitive Slave Clause applies to New York's obligation to give back fugitives. These people are not fugitives. Ah, that was the argument before Judge Payne, and he clamps right onto it. And Jay and Culver made the argument and said, yeah, of course, if they were fugitives, we wouldn't be here. Uh, we might be arguing about due process, but we wouldn't be here. These, not, these are not fugitives. And Payne says, 
Well, if they're not fugitives, then we're not bound by the fugitive slave clause. They say, that's right. He says, if they're not fugitives, we're not bound by the fugitive slave law. That's right. He says, well, what are we bound by? And they say, well, we're bound by the only, uh, the only source of law, which is the statute. The statute says they're free. And Judge Payne says, all right, uh, I got to do some research. Let me, let me think about this. I need a week. And he held them up from leaving. They were not allowed to leave. That's right. They were in confinement. The slaves were kept here in New York pending his ruling. Yeah, I, I have to check where they were held. I think they were held not in like a jail, no. but I think they were held in some kind of uh, neutral uh, for, forum or, or something like that. Because, because Erastus Culver was around. He was a tiger. Uh, you get to know Erastus Culver. Here's another guy you'd want around the dinner table because he was so smart and so bold and so outspoken that, um, that you really want to sort of get to know him a little bit. So I could, I could uh, play him in the movie and you could play Judge Payne. Because, <laughs> I'd um, like to, I've spent my life as an advocate and you've spent your life as a judge. So I, I would, I, you know, I, did, I would like to think I would try to live up to, uh, uh, up to Elijah Payne. Very handsome, though. That's the fit, the fitting that bill is another story. He's almost movie star, good looking, uh, distinguished as can be. And when you look at him, you say, wow, this is, this is almost out of central casting. Tell us some of the words he used as an opinion that were so moving and appropriate. Well, being a first-rate lawyer and first-rate judge, he wrote his decision, and he was good to his word. He says, I need a week. Now, think of what goes on now when you have a case this monumental. It takes us, you know, weeks and weeks, sometimes months to get it. And he says, I need a week. And you have every reason to believe that based on his 10-page writing or so, that he was in the books day and night, burning the oil. And, and so not just legal books. I mean, he was into books of the Enlightenment, right? cases and, and the enlightenment books and philosophy books so at the end of seven days or eight days he comes out he says here's my ruling he puts it on two grounds one he's too good a lawyer not to put it on the statute and he said look these are not fugitives fugitive slave law is inapplicable fugitive slave clause is inapplicable it's the statute the statute by which the nine months allowance had previously existed was repealed. Therefore, under New York law, they're free. As far as Virginia's argument of um, privileges and immunities, here's my response to that. The privileges and immunities clause does not give Virginians the privilege of having Virginia law apply in New York. My version of the privileges and immunities clause is that we will treat Virginians exactly as we treat New Yorkers. New Yorkers aren't allowed to sojourn with slaves, and so too Virginians are prohibited. If Virginia has, let's suppose in today's law, if Virginia has highways that allow them to go 90 miles an hour, that would not allow a Virginian to drive 90 miles an hour in New York. We're not gonna mistreat them, 
but we're not going to allow them to do anything that New Yorkers cannot do. That's my version, Payne's version of privileges and immunities. That version, by the way, and as you and I know, is the version that basically has held sway in most American courts through this day. That's how we interpret privileges and immunities. And I don't, Payne obviously wasn't the first person to do this, but he articulated it so well that you can say, yeah, of course, well, that makes, yeah, that makes, of course that makes sense. We're not gonna disserve anybody in Virginia, but if a New Yorker held a slave and was traveling around, we would confiscate that slave just the same way as we are doing to a Virginian or South Carolina or somebody from Buffalo or White Plains or Elmira. Made sense. Judge Payne's, the, he had, a, he had a, a sentence or two about the rights of other people to exercise control over other people. Do you remember yes. what he said? Yes. Then he gets to the next part of his uh, jurisprudence, which was interwoven with the statute, saying that insofar as Virginia speaks of the reacquisition of property, we in New York do not recognize the concept of property in humans. Wow, and he did use the majestic phrases. So when you read his decision, it's not only uh, first rate in terms of his lawyer-like approach, but it really knocks it out of the park in terms of its humanistic dimension, in which he basically was saying much the same as the political philosophers were saying, Virginia can recognize property in humans. We do not recognize the concept of property in humans, so that therefore we will not apply New York law because as a matter of comity, we don't recognize it. So we're not gonna accord comity if according comity destroys our own beliefs in the absence of any concept um, of ownership in people. He put it very much that way. And uh, his decision is around, uh, people who know their way around the internet can probably navigate their way there and find it. Can I inject one, one little anecdote here? So what happens? <clears throat> and this is something else that when I first encountered this, and I told my daughter who is in California and she's an intellectual property, so she's friendly with a lot of people who write scripts, said, Betsy, this, is a, this would make a movie because let me tell you what happened in the courtroom. As the lawyers are arguing the case, Julia Lemon goes over to the other side of the courtroom and she approaches the two elderly women, mothers, slave, slaves. They're like, one is 23 and the other is in her late teens. And she says to them, why are you doing this? Why do you want to break up our family? You're part of our family. Don't we live together as a family? Why would you deprive me of our property when we all share the same household? Don't you want to really come back? Now just think of these young, uneducated women who are being asked to come back by the only person who has ever controlled them and owned them. Think of the 
mindset and the dilemma that they were in when their owner, they were not into Grotius and James Madison and ownership of property. All they know was that they were owned. And now their owner is saying, why are you doing this? Please come back. And they're listening to the lawyers talk about freedom. Just, I mean, can you, Dennis, can you imagine? Put yourself in the shoes of those two women, young women. Uh, they're thinking, life is very uncertain. What's going to happen to me? Right. Uh, I'll be, if I'm free today in New York City, what, where do I go? What do I do? How do I make my way? What happens to my children? Right. They, they have their children with them. Right. Um, it, it, you can imagine the, what was running through their minds and the uncertainty of if I choose freedom, will I be well off? Will I be okay? Or do I have to go back to this horrible institution of slavery uh, and, and give up my freedom voluntarily? You can only imagine what through, went through their minds. I'll bet you they got good advice from those lawyers. Well, the lawyers, yeah, you can be sure of that. And there was another element that comes into it. We chatted about this. Uh, the boys, some of the boys were teenagers, and the indications were that the boys were not that sure. They were really, really on the fence. And the older girls, the mothers, were the ones who said, no, we want to go through with this lawsuit. By the way, they could not predict how Judge Payne was going to rule at that point. So also into the mix, they had to figure out, what if Judge Payne ruled against them? And they're probably they could go back and get whooped, right? Yeah. So that also entered into their mind. But there's reason to believe that maybe the older girls had another thought, which was that in one of the cases, her husband was sold away. And she's thinking to herself, wait a minute now, I'm in a position now where no one is going to sell my children away. If I'm free, right. maybe I can avoid the prospect of having my children taken away and put on the auction block. Families were broken up routinely. Oh my. So they're set free and immediately, right. with the help of Louis Napoleon and others, they are spirited <laughs> by the Underground Railroad right. to Canada. You're out of here. You're out of here. You're and, out of here. And they made their life in Canada where to our knowledge they lived out uh, their lives right. as free people. Yes. And uh, there was a legal issue involved, which is the right of appeal yes. that the Lemons had to appeal Judge Payne's rulings. Yes. And while we consider it enlightened and fully supported, they were worried, everybody was worried that on appeal, yeah. the case might not be affirmed right. and that the Lemons might lose. Right. And so a fund was raised, $5,000 was raised to compensate the lemons, $5,000 at that time is like $200,000 today. They, they raise a fund of $5,000 to pay the lemons, for the lemons to give up their appeal and the lemons to be compensated, put that in quotes, for the loss of their quote property so that the appeal would be bought out. Yeah. And Judge Payne himself contributed to that fund to buy out the appeal. That is, I, I just, that is a footnote I absolutely love. That John Jay II, yeah. uh, Culver, all these lawyers, uh, the young uh, future president of the United States, Martin Van Buren, uh, put up their own money to buy out the appeal so that the Lemon slaves 
uh, could be free and free from any, uh, the result of any appeal. But appeals were taken, right? Yeah, boy, talk about, talk about the ultimate mixed motives. Uh, and the reason the mixed motives comes into play is because you and I know as lawyers that if uh, someone is paid, the case is settled, they're no longer aggrieved, they no longer have a right to appeal. And surely that was in the mind of John Jay and Culver and maybe a little bit in the rest of, in, uh, in Elijah Payne's mind. The, the merchants though uh, had other motives. They were wanting to curry favor with the South and they wanted to show the South that they're gonna compensate these people who, from whom property was taken so that they could continue to do good business with the South. And the South would publish, publish the names of all the merchants who kicked in to help the lemons. And uh, the New York, one of the New York commercial newspapers said, look at these merchants, they're helping the lemons because New York took away and confiscated their slaves. And here are these heroic merchants who are paying slave power their money back. So they passed around a second hat for the slaves and the merchants contributed a total of $2. $2 to be on your way and 5,000 to buy out the freedom. Right, so when we talk about mixed, mixed motives, yeah. blunting, blunting the appeal, you and I as lawyers can appreciate about blunting the appeal, but the other side of it was currying favor with the South. Yes. So isn't, isn't that extraordinary? An appeal was taken, but it took years to get through the New York courts. Uh, because while well, I worked on Saturdays back then, it still took time to get appeals through the courts. And it, was, it wasn't until 1860 that the New York Court of Appeals got the case. Uh, tell us about what they did. Yeah, they had a stop along the way at uh, what now is the active appellate division. At that time, it was called uh, Supreme Court General Term. That changed in the Constitution of 1894. Those courts became formed into the appellate divisions. New York State Constitution. Yeah. Yes, right. Right. Thank you. Uh, the uh, state constitution had allowed the appeals to go from. This was called Judge Payne was a judge of su Superior Court. The appeal went to Supreme Court General Term. It got there in 1857. It got to the so-called appellate division General Term. Uh, about a half a year after Dred Scott was decided. Oh my God, so now think of this, Dennis. You're now sitting on the bench, or you're arguing the case before the appellate division, general term. Dred Scott is the 900-pound gorilla in the room. New law of the land. New law of the land. Dred Scott says, listen up, slaves are property. So now we're in front of the Intermediate Appeals Court in New York, and there's Dred Scott looming. And uh, if you read the record of general term, it's absolutely astonishing that Charles O'Connor, who was one of the greatest lawyers in New York history, who was the attorney for slave power, barely mentioned Dred Scott. I'd like to interview him. I think I have a hunch as to why, but uh, that's the subject of another podcast. Dennis, you and I will take this to Peoria, right? There you go. So let's go to 1860 and close the loop. It gets to the New York Court of Appeals in 1860, and a split court there 
Uh, what did they decide? Five to three, come down, affirming Judge Payne, affirming the active, affirming general, general term. And what did they say about Dred Scott? That's now three years old, it's the law of the land. Right, this, is, this was why I was so eager to read the Lemon case, thinking how in the world did they get out from under Dred Scott? There were two majority opinions, one by Hiram Denio, and his majority opinion came first because he was a so-called regular member of the, of the Court of Appeals. And he wrote, and he spent his time, basically 90% of the time on the statute. Good lawyer that he was, he was not gonna start talking about Grotius and about slavery and philosophy. He just said, hey, we have a statute. So he did his stuff. The second majority opinion was written by a judge named William Wright. And he was one of the four judges, the judge, the Court of Appeals at the time consisted of eight judges, which was strange, but that's the way it was. William Wright wrote the second majority opinion, and he picked up on the argument that Charles O'Connor made that barely alluded to Dred Scott. And William Wright thought to himself, you know, if Charles O'Connor is not going to press Dred Scott, I better press it because surely the United States Supreme Court is going to figure out that Dred Scott is in the case, even though no one is really talking about it. He says, oh, yes, Dred Scott, Dred Scott. Yes, we're aware of Dred Scott. But Dred Scott was decided on jurisdictional grounds, basically, because the United States Supreme Court held uh, when you combine all the opinions, that Dred Scott had no capacity to sue, lacking uh, diversity, juris diversity of, 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 of citizenship, because he was not a citizen of Missouri, because as a slave could not be a citizen of anything in the United States, had no capacity to sue, therefore lacked diversity of citizenship, therefore the court had no jurisdiction. That was what decided the case. He said, the rest of Dred Scott, we uh, see as dictum, which we are not disposed to follow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure the Supreme Court would have agreed, but why didn't the case get to the Supreme Court? Another one of history's great mysteries. Um, well, there was a civil war that broke out. Well, indeed, <clears throat> uh, but Virginia still had Lemon was decided in March of 1860. It was argued in January of 1860, decided in March of 1860. April, May, June, July, August, more, a lot more than 30 days to file a notice of appeal. South Carolina did not secede until December. So the Court of Appeals decides the case in March. April, May, June, July, August, September, October, we've got like eight or nine months where Virginia does not file a notice of appeal. Then South Carolina secedes, then the war breaks out. Why did Virginia not file a notice of appeal? Well, you read the newspaper articles all over the place and the newspapers say, well, when this gets to the United States Supreme Court, we in Virginia are gonna be vindicated and surely it's there and some newspapers say it is there. Uh, but the researchers have never found it. And uh, I contacted the uh, Library of Congress and asked the United States Supreme Court historian, his name is Ellis, can you search your records and see whether 
Virginia ever filed a notice of appeal? Is there any notice of appeal at all in the Lemon case? And he says, let me get back to you. And he comes back. The answer is clearly no. So that's no longer in doubt. We can no longer say, well, was it or was it not? We know this. It never got to the U.S. Supreme Court because, as you say, of a war. But why Virginia never filed? Complete mystery. Well, in the South, though, um, seceding from the Union was uh, moving forward. And South Carolina even cited this case, the Lemon case, as a reason why they seceded, because they said our property is being taken and the New York courts, the courts like New York, are not honoring our, uh, our property rights. So that's one of the reasons that we in South Carolina feel like we should secede. Going back to your earlier comment about Louis Napoleon, Louis Napoleon signs an X. Can you imagine that Louis Napoleon would have thought that based on that X, South Carolina would sort of emblazoned him in history right. forever. Eight years later. Well, thank you so much, Al. This has been incredibly enlightening. I'm sure people will look forward to reading the rest of the, uh, the magnificent story in your, in your book. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted to have been here with you this morning. Real pleasure. And you, Dennis. Thanks very much.